You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Hey, sorry, before Cody gets gone, Caleb here. We were having some technical difficulties, so the only recording is from a phone. Sorry for the poor audio quality. The passage Pastor Cody is teaching on is Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33, and the audio cuts in while Cody is reading, starting in verse 27. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all have her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, the first words in our passage today are helpful. We notice them at the beginning of verse 23. Look there. We read, the same day Sadducees came to Jesus. So, this is a little time indicator letting us know that we're still looking at Wednesday of the Passion Week. And we've been looking at Wednesday for quite a few weeks because it was a very busy day for Jesus, a day of teaching and being tested repeatedly, and uh, we shouldn't be surprised why there's so much emphasis on Wednesday, because what follows Wednesday? Of course, Thursday, when Jesus will be betrayed, and Friday, when he will be crucified. In other words, Matthew helps us understand how the opposition against Jesus is continuing to build, and is about to reach its climax. And like I said last week, one thing Jesus has done rather effectively is offend every single group of people by his words and his actions. Therefore, everyone, at least it would seem, everyone of considerable influence is looking to get rid of Jesus, to break up his following. And it doesn't matter who they are, whether they be a Pharisee, a Herodian, a Sadducee. And remember, these groups, they all have a lot of differences. A lot of differences. Yet, what was the one thing that united them all? The belief that they needed to stop Jesus, expose him as a false teacher, and get rid of him some way, somehow. And so Jesus, we see, is getting put on trial over and over and over again towards the end of Matthew. And remember how these challenges began most recently. They started when the Pharisees came to Jesus with this question, By what authority do you do these things? And remember the context of the question. They were essentially asking Jesus, By what authority do you cast people out of the temple? By what authority do you have the credentials to teach as a rabbi? By what authority are you a prophet or potentially the Messiah? And they just struggled with Jesus, didn't they? I mean, you have a guy who grew up in Nazareth, not exactly a place with a great reputation. Remember the question that someone asked somewhere along the line, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
He, he wasn't born to a family of great wealth or affluence. He grew up with relative obscurity. So he was just such a challenge for the religious leaders. Well, what, what do we do with this guy? But their objection didn't seem to slow Jesus down when they asked about his authority, because what happens next? Well, the Pharisees would then send the Herodians and their own disciples, Pharisees in training, to ask Jesus another question. And we looked at that question last week. Perhaps you remember it. It was a question about taxes. They asked, teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? So he was presented with a political question. And uh, remember why it was a political question. I mean, at this point, they're like, how can we just get rid of Jesus? And they're thinking, maybe we can actually get Rome involved. And if Jesus answers in a certain way with this political question, he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, what's he become at that point? Guilty of treason. And at that point, well, guess what? They don't need to worry about him. Uh, the Jewish authorities can wash their hands and just let Rome take care of Jesus. But he doesn't take the bait. And uh, so at the end of this thing, you might remember it, it was actually quite a disaster for them, wasn't it? Because Jesus exposes them as hypocrites. He sees through their deception and he confounds them once again with his perfect wisdom. So that was last week. And again, another failed attempt to trap Jesus in his words. And so what do we see now? Now the Sadducees are also coming against Jesus. And again, it should just totally shock us to see such collaboration between these groups, but especially between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because, I mean, if you're talking about two groups that had their differences, it, it would almost seem like these two groups couldn't have more different between them. What do I mean? Well, think of the following. First, think, you know, the Pharisees, they believed in the oral tradition. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed that every book in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, came from God. The Sadducees did not. They only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament came from God. The Pharisees believed in the existence of angels and spirits. The Sadducees did not. And lastly, perhaps most important to point out since it's in our text, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees did not. And because of this, I want you to think about the overall perspective of the Sadducees. They essentially believed that when you die, you move into a uh, state of non-existence. In other words, there was no afterlife. There was no heaven. There was no hell. There was no reward, there was no punishment, so when you die, you just die. And therefore, they also did not really have a messianic hope. They didn't really care about the Messiah. It wasn't of great interest to them, because when life was over, well, guess what? It was just over. And this helps kind of make sense of their lifestyle, too, then, because the Sadducees, they were an ancient, priestly aristocracy that enjoyed considerable wealth and great power especially political power. In other words, they were the ruling power of Israel, especially around the temple. And that's something that was of great importance to them. The Pharisees, again, they emphasized the oral law. They focused on the practical, how do you 
do this or how do you do that throughout the week? But for the Sadducees, it was about the temple. And uh, because of this, we need to understand that enlargement of the Sadducees were despised by the common people. And this makes sense when you remember what Jesus did in the temple, right? Because what do we see him do? He enters the temple and he drives out money changers, he cleanses the temple, and he shuts down the sacrifices that were going on there. And it was an entire Ponzi scheme that had been created in the temple with the Sadducees lining their, topic, or their pockets. They had an agreement with uh, people to go in there and do business and they would get kickbacks from them. And so you might remember that they were charging more than they should have for sacrifices. And there were even unreasonable fees added on top of people who were exchanging their currency for another just to buy the sacrifices. And so there was just so much corruption in the temple, and people knew that the Sadducees were very much connected to that corruption and were taking advantage of them. And again, so we're just amazed the Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of uniting together against Jesus. And today we see the Sadducees then come to Jesus with a very pressing question in their minds, one that dealt with the resurrection of the dead. And with that as the main focus of our text then, here's what we're going to notice as we move through our passage. First, we're going to notice a biblical conundrum, and then we'll notice a blistering correction, and then we will notice a bemused crowd. So, that's our outline for today as we move through this. A biblical conundrum, a blistering correction, a bemused crowd. So firstly, a biblical conundrum. So last week, again, Jesus was tested with a political question. This time around, though, what is the nature of the question? Well, it happens to be a theological one. And the premise of the argument is actually taken from the Bible. The Sadducees dove into the book of Deuteronomy and brought up what they believed would be a problematic passage for the resurrection, and it happened to be a passage that spoke to the topic of marriage. So what was it? Well, in Deuteronomy 25, there was a law known as the Leveret Marriage um, Law. And what the law essentially said was that if a man happened to be married, but then he died, leaving behind a widow, then it would become his brother's responsibility, if he had one, presumably a younger brother, to marry the widow if she happened to be childless. Now, the law would certainly sound a bit odd for us today, and if you are a younger brother, you're probably thinking, man, I'm really glad we don't follow that anymore. Um, but understand why it was a helpful law back then. You see, among the Israelites, in order to transition a deceased man's wealth to future generations, the brother would serve as a bridge. And not only would he ensure that the survival of a family line and the continuation of one's name and reputation, but even more, in a time when women had few legal rights and little means of support, he would also provide security for the widow. Because think of it, without children, without a husband, what happens to widows? They become extremely vulnerable to poverty and exploitation. But this could all be avoided if the sibling's brother married his wife. So, to summarize the importance of the law then, think of all that it did. It continued a man's lineage, 
provided economic security for widows, and promoted social cohesion and family solidarity. But that's not to say that it was a perfect law. It certainly came with its challenges. And one challenge that would uh, face it is that if a man was greedy, he might not follow through with his responsibility. And why? Well, I guess kind of put yourself in his shoes. If a man takes his brother's wife, and not only does he have to provide for her, but he also would not personally acquire his brother's wealth, since it would be passed on to the next generation. And no doubt this is why a man by the name of Onan, if you've read about him and you've gone, I don't understand this passage. Well, he was judged by God in Genesis 38.9 because he would not carry out this responsibility. And keep in mind, the Sadducees are in no way now, putting up uh, an objection to the law, they actually don't have any problem with the law itself, but they do think the law created considerable problems for the idea of a future resurrection. Hence, listen to the illustration they bring up. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? Quite an interesting uh, imagined scenario we have here. So here they're looking at Jesus. So Jesus, when they see each other after the resurrection, they all rise and they're in each other's company. Can you see the conflict? Whose wife is this woman going to belong to? The first guy that dies, is she gonna, he's going to go over to the seventh and be like, hey, she's actually my wife. Is the seventh guy going to argue and be like, well, actually, we built a lot more memories than the two of you ever had together. It's a little bit odd and unusual. You can almost sense the sarcasm here. And it would seem there's probably uh, in their, their minds kind of this feeling that, ah, aha, we've got him. We've stumped the preacher. But have they? Well, certainly not. And we see that as we get into our next point, where we now notice a blistering correction. A blistering correction in verses 28 through 32. Now, there is a lot to point out in Jesus' correction of the Sadducees here. But the first thing I want you to notice is this, that, I mean, this is not exactly a North Dakota nice response by Jesus, is it? I mean, it's... It's, uh, it, it's not like Jesus is thinking, well, you know, that's, that's a pretty good point you bring up. I think I'm going to have to think about that and get back to you. Even though what he's really thinking in his mind is, wow, you guys are so clueless. No, there's no passivity. No talking around something and until these guys maybe just get the point and figure it out. No, Jesus gets right to it and he says to them, well, you're wrong. You're wrong. Now, it's unfortunate that I even need to make a point about this, but I do. Just think about this for a moment. Now, you and I live in a day and age in which there's the belief that there are no moral absolutes. You find people today who say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me, right? Well, let's be clear. Such thinking is completely foreign to Jesus. So if he saw someone in error, he didn't say, well, that's great, live by your truth, did he? No. 
He corrected them. And yes, he always did it in love. But you know something? It wouldn't always have felt like love. You have to think. I mean, whatever the sense is at this point, feeling some sort of warm, fuzzy feelings with this rebuke? Well, certainly not. Even though Jesus always speaks the truth in love and out of the fullness of grace and truth. So here's my point, friends. Be careful you do not become intolerant of disagreement and debate. Be careful that you do not resort to passivity and simply walk away when you hear certain lies. There is a time and a place to stand up for the truth and to vocalize it. There's a time to say to others, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. And let me tell you why. Now, we are to do this with respect for every single person, but how much dignity do we place on the individual if we refuse to tell them the truth and rather show our acceptance of falsehood? But you can't do that today if you're considered a not safe person, not you. And people, they all want safe places. Universities today are now designed for safe spaces, places where people can escape being told that they're wrong and where every idea is affirmed and celebrated. But it's a completely dangerous idea, isn't it? Because what is the true, ultimate definition of unsafe? Hell is unsafe. The wrath of God? Unsafe. Lies? Particularly lies that undermine the hope of heaven and the forgiveness of sins, extremely unsafe. And since Jesus understood this extremely well, here he is saying, you're wrong. And notice how he follows it up. He says that the Sadducees are wrong in two specific ways. First, he says you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. Secondly, you're wrong because you don't know the power of God. And... So here's what he's ultimately saying. First, he's saying you're wrong because you really don't understand the Bible. You lack insight. You have bad hermeneutics. But secondly, even more, you have a small view of God. You've reduced him down to nothing. You've stripped him of any omnipotence or power or might. And how so? Jesus explains in verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now there's a lot for us to glean from Jesus' response here, but there are two things in particular that I want you to walk away with today. With the first being this, that the first thing Jesus points out is that our ultimate hope is God. Our ultimate hope is God. Now in our church, let me just say that one thing I think we do well is that we emphasize how, how our God is a pro-life and pro-marriage God, okay? And therefore we talk about the value of marriage and the blessing of marriage and the value of children and the blessing of children. But you know what can sometimes get lost? That there is a greater hope than marriage and children. There really is. There is a greater hope than marriage and children. And what is it? It is to be with God forever and ever and ever. 
And I think this is good for us to hear because honestly, I think there are times when our roles as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother can, can frankly occupy a place in our hearts that it becomes idolatrous because all of life will sooner revolve around our family. Right? I mean, that's kind of the place we default to, where the family is supreme. Everything's about the family. But friends, that just shouldn't be, because that's not the way things will be. And this is why Jesus himself said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And Jesus was saying, the love that you have for him ought to be so great in comparison to, to your love for even the closest family members that it ought to make your love for them appear as hate. He's obviously not saying to hate your parents or your children, right? Now listen, I love my marriage. I do. I love my spouse. I love my kids. They are, I can tell you, with all the confidence in the world, they are the greatest earthly blessings I have ever received and ever will receive. But you know something else? One day I know that I will not actually know my children as my children. I just won't know them in that way because more significantly, I will know them as my brothers and sisters in Christ if they have believed in Jesus. And, you know, the same is true of our spouses, right, if we have them. And I was thinking about this this week, you know, what this would be like. And honestly, I can't even imagine what it would be like. That one day, here I am, I see my wife in the presence of the Lord. And I'm not going to know her as my wife. I'm just going to know her as my sister in Christ. And amazing to me is the fact that when I see her in that day and in that moment, the love that I have for her is going to be the fullest purest love that I have ever loved her with, and yet we will also not know each other romantically or even desire to know each other romantically. Can you imagine this? It's just, it's just baffling. It's so incredible. You probably can't comprehend it because, I mean, it just goes against the natural brain of our thinking in every way. Because, I mean, the more you get to know someone, the more you spend time with them, the more that there's going to be physical affection that enters the relationship. Now, don't get me wrong, I think there's still going to be affection in heaven. I think in the new creation, there's still going to be uh, a loving embrace. Maybe we'll greet each other with a holy kiss, right? But our affection, there's always going to be a boundary to it. And it's a boundary that's going to be respected and not disdained. It's going to be a boundary that will be celebrated and not fought against because our greatest, greatest affections will be for the Lord. And we will be so fully satisfied in Him and in His love and in His goodness that we will not need anything from anyone else. Can you imagine that? I was reading through my systematic theology like I always do this week. As I was reflecting on this, I came across a statement by John Frame. It's rather lengthy, but I just thought it was such a beautiful picture of things to come for Christians. John Frame said this, quote, 
our earthly families will be transcended by the worldwide family of God. But doubtless, the new creation is not a time of lesser intimacy, but greater intimacy with God and with other members of His body. I have no doubt that we will share our gifts with one another to a degree unheard of today. We will no longer be suspicious or fearful or envious of one another. So we will share openly what we are, what we think, what we are able to do. I don't know exactly what will replace sexual pleasure, but I know that our intimacy with God and one another will be something greater and better than anything we know and enjoy on this earth, as everything will be. And why? Because we will be like the angels. That's what Jesus says, because we will be like the angels. And this is not to say that we become angels. It's not what I'm saying. We don't become like angels in every way, but we do become like them in one particular way, and that we will not be reproductive beings anymore. Because when the new creation comes, whoever is there is going to be there. Whoever is not going to be there won't be there. Nobody will be added by birth, and nobody will be subtracted by death. And because of this, I also want to provide some encouragement to those of you here today who might not be married or don't have kids. Listen to me. Marriage and children are good things. But are they the highest things? Are they the greatest things? Are they the most supreme things? No, because God is. And for this reason, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of children or a spouse, but set your hope in God who desires to satisfy you with himself in ways that nobody else can. You might have moments where you think that God is holding out the very best things for you. But he's not, because he offers himself to you. So our first application that we just looked at, we notice our ultimate hope is God. Now we come to our second application, which is this. Secondly, our Bible is true. Our Bible is true. Now, earlier, it might help to remember what I said about the Sadducees. Remember how they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, right? And certainly this is what contributed to their wrong understanding of the resurrection of the dead and other things like angels and spirits, because those matters are covered in greater detail in the later writings of the Bible. Nonetheless, think about this. Does Jesus quibble with them about how what books they should believe and why they were wrong to discard the others? Does he, he say, well, guys, if, if you just believed all of the books, Genesis through Malachi, and you have it straight, and let me tell you why you should believe those, no. But he goes to the common ground he has with them, and he reasons with them on the basis of what they're already going to accept as the Word of God. So if they believe in the first five books, well, guess what? So does Jesus. So rather than going anywhere else, he stays right in the Torah and explains to them the Scripture in its proper context. And how does he do it? I want you to notice the shift. So they are quoting Moses. They say, well, Moses said this. Well, where does Jesus go? He quotes God and what God said to Moses. And here's a little bit of what he's up to 
Jesus is ultimately going to show how the Bible speaks with one voice. How it speaks with one voice. So in their situation, realize what they've done. They have committed a huge mistake because what they've done is they have pitted Moses against God by cherry-picking a verse without asking how it aligns or harmonizes with everything else that's in the Torah. And you see this problem today even in modern scholarship because people will at different times say, well, you know, Paul says this, but, but James says that. Or Paul says this, but Peter says that. As if the two are contradicting each other. But are they? Never. Never. And the Bible won't do that. The Bible won't contradict itself. Because yes, it has many different human authors. This much we know. But at the end of the day, there is still only one divine author, and he does not contradict himself. We know this because of all that the Bible has to say about itself. We can think about 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, if the scripture is breathed out by God, it means it proceeds from, it comes from God. God being a perfect God cannot author an imperfect Bible. He just can't. A perfect God cannot produce error. We're given insight into how we can have such confidence that the Bible got the words of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, we read, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it truly is amazing, right? I mean, we've got 66 different books in the Bible, over 40 different authors, and they write with different, you know, words, and, and, and they write at different times, and we see their personalities shine through, and yet at the end of the day, every single word that every one of those authors wrote down, God made sure it was his, that it represented exactly what he wanted to be there. So, friends, know this, anytime that we are stumped by something, then where's the problem? It's not with God's word. It's with our thinking. And that's ultimately what Jesus is pointing out to the Sadducees, that they definitely have a flaw in their thinking. And the mistake was so basic, really, that it's going to blow your minds. It's going to blow your minds. What do I mean? Well, notice what Jesus says. Look at verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, again, just kind of a side point I want you to notice here is that he's saying that God said, have you not read what God said to you? To you. As in the word of God speaks today. Well, but God didn't speak to them. He spoke to Moses. And yet Jesus is saying, no, God, in speaking to Moses, in this moment, God was speaking to you. And everything in God's revelation is for you. The same is true for you today. God's revelation is still spoken to you. But notice how Jesus focuses on how God revealed himself to Moses. And this would take us back to Exodus 3, verse 6. What, 
when God sent Moses to Israel, remember that moment, Moses is going like, how are they going to trust my word? They asked me where I come from, who sent me, what am I going to tell them? And that's where we get the great I am statement. God said, tell them I am sent. Tell them I am sent. And he was I am because he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Japheth. So, I want you to think about this, right? I mean, were Abraham and Isaac and Jacob alive when God spoke this to Moses? Well, no, right? Moses lived far after them. But, here they are, and God is still saying that he is their God, currently, presently, as he speaks to Moses. And just in case you're not following me here, maybe a little illustration. So, I have a dog. We have a dog. Our family has a dog. A little uh, Bernie Doodle. Uh, doesn't shed. Wonderful. Uh, he's friendly with most people. Unless you come to our house, we're not we're not home, and then you enter the home like Max Dean did, and, and he got bit. But in any case, we got Dexter. I am currently, presently, I am Dexter's master. I'm his owner. And when Dexter dies, I'm going to say that I was his owner. Because if I keep saying that I am Dexter's owner, or I am Dexter's master, after he has died, it's going to lead to some confusion. Not the least of which, I know that my kids are going to be scratching their heads going, is Dexter still alive? No, no, no. Okay, I, I, now I feel bad, I just popped that balloon of all dogs going to heaven. I mean, no. Um, when Dexter is gone, I will no longer be his master because he will be gone. But friends, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they may have ceased to be on earth, but they did not cease to be alive. And that's why God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was pointing to the fact that they never died. They continued to live and were living even as he spoke to Moses. And even now we know that they are still alive. In other words then, I want you to think about this. The crux of Jesus' argument comes down to nothing other than a verb tense. You know what this drives home then? The fact that every word that is in the Bible matters to God. So, so you don't just quickly just scan it and move on. Everything we read, every word, every verb tense is significant. It is exactly what God wanted to be there. And so significant is that. I mean, Exodus 3, there he is, Jesus is saying, no, there is a resurrection, and I can, I can prove it because of the basis of Exodus chapter 3. And you know what? This is not the first time this, this happens, and it certainly won't be the last time this happens, because I want you to look at your Bibles. We can even notice it in Matthew chapter 22 here that in just a few verses, we're going to come up to verse 41, and we're going to see this discussion Jesus has with the Pharisees, and he's going to test them about Psalm 110. And here's what he says, look there, verse 42, he says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You're talking about an argument built on one word. Again, to drive home the fact that every single word of Scripture is important. And so, friends, here's my encouragement. Again, praise the Lord. Friends, we have a book that we can trust. Jesus believes your Bible is from God. And indeed it is. And therefore he approves it in every way. He affirms it in every way. He believes it in every way. He believes in its historicity. He believes it is the revelation of God. He believes in its accuracy. And he believes in its doctrine. And friends, I hope you will too. Well, that is the crux of Jesus' argument, and certainly it had its impact, didn't it? Because what was the result? That's what we see next as we now look at a bemused crowd. A bemused crowd. Verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at its teaching. I couldn't say an astonished crowd just didn't alliterate well. But what was bemused? The definition of bemused is having or showing feelings of wry amusement, especially from something that is surprising or perplexing. It's like bewildered and amazed at the same time. And certainly, this would describe those that heard Jesus teach. And this isn't the first time this happens, right? We could think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives a fantastic exposition of the Old Testament, and at the end of it, here they are, the crowds, saying to each other that he taught not as one of their scribes, but as one who had authority. When you think back to when Jesus was teaching to those in his own small town community, right? And as he's teaching in their synagogue, what's the response? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Well, yes, he was all of those things. But he was also so much more than that. The reason why people were amazed at his wisdom was because he was the supreme wise one. He was God, very God. And he still is to this day. Jesus reigns from on high. He is seated next to the right hand of God the Father. And the question ultimately then is this, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Some of you here, you continue to resist Jesus. In your own minds, you still continue to argue against him and argue with him. Which is quite the irony, isn't it? You think about all the people who argue against him, even saying he doesn't exist, and yet they're arguing with him. Friends, do not keep arguing against the Lord. God is the Savior of the living. He is the God of the living because he offers eternal life to anyone who will place their faith in him. Have you done that? Have you turned from sin and turned to Jesus Christ to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior? I hope you would. I hope you do because eternity is a long, long, long if you refuse, 
One day, eternity will not be with God, but it will be suffering under the wrath of God. And if you end up there, it will only be because you refused the incredible offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. You do not have to go to hell because God has provided a way for you to be reconciled to him, to be forgiven of all of your sin. And so, friends, turn to him. He graciously opens up his arms, making himself available to you. And you will by no means ever regret turning to him because he will satisfy your heart's desire more than anything that this world offers. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.